Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. We have a fun episode, as always, because every episode is fun. Um, there's only a few guys who have really had the hand on the wheel of the stance scene, or that, as this case would be the Hella Flush scene, over the years. And uh, Mark Arsenal is one of them. And he is on the podcast today to talk about uh, branding, like how to, how to do your branding, where his branding came from, you know, kind of where he grew up and what his early life was. You where, know him from Fat Lace, Illist, Hella Flush. Yeah, we're going to talk automotive culture uh, as, as well. And, you know, RWB, he had a big part of bringing RWB. He wasn't the only one, but he had a big part of bringing RWB to the forefront here with you know the car that he built and and, and stuff like that so we're going to talk about all of that plus we have some project updates we do. for you as well but before we get to those what have you got for us yeah let's take a moment to talk about petrol box petrol box is a monthly subscription service specifically made for the automotive enthusiasts each and every month they carefully select new items including tools detailing supplies apparel garage gear stickers publications send it right there to your doorstep now there's two levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrolbox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrolbox Premium gets you more gear for $39.95 a month. Check these guys out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCREST, OVERCREST, Chris, OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month's order. Oh, I, so I just, as you're speaking about this, I just got some uh, some text messages. Okay. Uh, it says, got a couple good days of progress. I would figure another day of metal work on this door, on this door. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so we're talking, of course, about your 911. Uh, on this door, sure, I will have three plus days into the other door as well, hoping to have this one primed by the end of the week. Gaps are starting to look respectable. And I'm looking at the photo here, and it looks like the bottom three inches of my door are new. Now, I sent you pictures, right? Yeah, you sent me what's going on. I did. I posted my Instagram, too. My doors were... They were pretty rusty. They're really rusty in the bottom, like where all the moisture sits. They were yep. really, they were really rusty. But Mine looks, aren't even that rusty, Chris. They were, looks like the doors are on the car. He's showing me the gap. He says, put the patch in the bottom with silicone bronze to control heat input, and it worked out great. And it does look really nice. I'm so excited. It looks like I can see. <laughs> I love how you're just looking at this live. I am. I'm seeing it for the first time. The door is on the car and it looks like the fender gap is great on the front and the rear. I'm I, I'm, I'm super excited. I'm not super excited about the every time he's like, yeah, it's gonna be about another three days for that door. I go, oh my God. What is that costing it's as like, well as waiting? <laughs> well, I don't know what the, I think the hourly rate's like 80 bucks an hour or something like that. So yep. I, uh, <laughs> I'm, oh boy. Good about, thing you didn't buy a boat last week. <laughs> oh man, I almost did. I almost bought a boat and the and I sent him, I'm like, can I come look at it? And he says, yes. And I go, when? And then 10 minutes later, I got a message that says sold. And I'm like, well, I guess that's the end of that. But it's, you're right. It's a good thing I didn't get a boat because it was probably broken anyway. Um, also, my carbs are at home waiting for me. Oh, they arrived. They have, they're at home. They came while I was here. I should have just left the podcast to go home and check them out. Yeah. I'm really, really excited about that. And But I've gotten, I've talked to a couple people. And they're like, you're not going to make more power. Okay. Probably because my cams aren't big enough. Oh. But in my head, I go, okay. The biggest throttle, the throttle body is in my car. Yeah. Is at the biggest point, not the throttle body, but the biggest opening. Okay. is 69 millimeters. The butterfly is like 62, which is about 50 square millimeters. Okay, we're doing math here. The carbs are 46 millimeters. Uh-huh. Uh, times six. Times six is 200, 216 millimeters squared. Uh-huh. Okay, so we have 216 millimeter square centimeters versus 54 of intake area. 
Right. There is no possible way this thing makes less or the same power than it did before. It's it, got to make more power. You're you know, not taking into account velocity of air as well as other limiting factors like flow of your cams in your head. The camshafts are my biggest, going to be my biggest problem. I don't have super aggressive camshafts in the car. A stock 911 SC engine is around 180 horsepower. Okay. And a, the dynos from all the internet people, I kind of looked at a few different things of people with engines similar to mine with a slightly hotter cam is 240 wheel horsepower, which is about, if you do a little bit more math, which is, it gets ridiculous. Once you start talking about dinos and yeah, crank horsepower. Anyway, it should be around <laughs> plus or minus 510 horsepower, 280 horsepower at the crank, which is 100 more horsepower than, than stock, stock, which is, this thing is going to be fun. I can't wait well, for that. No, think of it this way. What was in a 72T from the factory? I don't know, like 120 or something. Right. And 911 S was 140. I've never actually looked. So think of it that way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's got 140 more horsepower. More or 100. Yeah. Yeah. More, like, <laughs> yeah. That was my first jank yeah ever. Yeah. yeah that's going to be. It's going to be. Either way, the throttle response. So you have like 160 horsepower more than I do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Your motor's pr decently fresh too, so that's probably yeah. fairly. Are you? You're gonna. Why is my pin on my backpack behind your car? My pin. Yeah, I'm gonna mine's have to also winning that. on my backpack. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What, anything going on with you? Yeah. So I sold the S3. The S3 is in my garage, but I have deposit on it. That thing you own for what? Two months? Yeah, I've owned it since February. So three months. Basically. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you yeah. owned it 30% longer than I originally surmised. Yeah. That is a very short ownership time, oh, even for, for me. Yeah, it is. It is for sure. But that's down the road. That's good. Someone. Is this, this is all because of bad morale from the bride. She just doesn't have good morale driving the it's, car. It's that. And with the economy tanking, we're like, yes. we don't want to be making payments on a car that we don't love. Yeah, that's the same way I feel about my wagon that I'm still making payments on. If anybody right. needs a 2012 uh, Golf Sport wagon, TDI was 77,000 miles on it, and a warranty until February. <laughs> please, please, for the love of God, let me know. Yes. If Someone does still need to buy the Hummer, though. Yeah. I, I, I had it. I had a couple people um, send me messages. We're kind of interested. Yeah, I, I almost want to buy it just to make a little bit of money. You know, just put give you like six or seven grand for it, and then... Just fix it up and sell it. But Go I, for it. <laughs> you know, because I can't wait to hear you complain about this. Oh, no. Yeah, it's... it's I can just see this going wrong. It's not going to happen. I'm, no. I, I don't... Someone should buy it and throw a V8 in it for themselves. Yes. Is what, this is the perfect candidate for it. If I had some sort of, uh, you know, basically uh, come along or situation, you know, I'm doing the chain thing. What's, right. A chain the, fall. I don't have one of those. Okay. So, I do. So pulling the motor out would be a pain in the ass. Yeah, I'm set at my house. So what are you doing? Just fix it. It's I been months. I don't feel like it. Yeah. I don't all feel right. Like so it. before we get to Mark coming on the podcast to talk about all things stance, culture, hella flush, branding, business, uh, culture, really good conversation. What have you got for us? Yeah, let's take a moment to talk about Oberk. They are a Midwest manufacturer of polishing compounds and supplies that is a researched, tested, and developed by professional detailers themselves. Oberk products are designed to decimate swirls, holograms, and all that oxidation you see in your vehicle's paint. And right now, Chris, Oberk is actually offering 20% off any order online with the code 
over crest the discount code is good not only right on their website obertcarcare.com but also on carsuppliesWarehouse.com and detailedimage.com go check them out and you have some great product to work with to get your paint as it should be all right here we go mark arsenal mark arsenal dude thanks so much for coming on the podcast man i'm really happy that you're here thank you it's great to be on this. It's uh, It's been really interesting um, following along with what you've done. And you're the man behind so many different things and uh, had such influence on the car culture that um, I want to talk about some of that. Before we get there, though, I want to talk a little bit about your history and, you know, kind of the foundation of your life that led you to where you are today. For sure. Yeah, let's do it. Where, where, did, you, where did you grow up? What was your you know, when you were a kid, what was around you? What was your life like? Okay. <laughs> so, uh, growing up, um, I, I grew up in San, I was born in San Francisco and then we moved to like a kind of a suburb called Daly city for a couple of years. Dude, I lived in Daly city. I live right next to the oh. cow palace, man. I did. I lived there. I had bars on my windows and everything. I, I, I yeah. can't, what's the name of the main, do you remember the savers that was in Daly city? Oh, I, I don't. Okay, so there was like the Savers and Daily City. I live right next to that. It was super sketchy, and I used to take. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I went to uh, I went to college in San Francisco at the Academy of Art, and I would take my oh, bike nice. and I would bike all the way up whatever street that was, all the way to the Bart, uh, and I would get on, and then I would lock my bike up there, and then I would ride the train into into town. And I remember one day I got off the off the subway, walked out, and there was my bike with just the frame. <laughs> no handlebars no seat wow. no, nothing i mean it was like the pedals it was just like laying the sprockets like laying on the ground man daily yeah. city was a trip back then i mean this we're talking like 1998 99 2000 kind of in that time they still do that till today <laughs> nothing's changed that's great that's great i i used to take my bike on but they'd always get mad when i'm standing in there with my bike i'd always get dirty looks and stuff like that oh yeah yeah, the Bart. I hated the smell of the Bart. It was the worst. Yeah, man. Nothing was ever nothing ever good happened there. I remember just standing there with my backpack, just like, uh. You know what was this? I had this really tragic experience. This was this was really bad. Uh, not bad like physically, but just bad. As I had my sketchbook that I had when I was going to art school. I had my sketch, all my sketching, and I used to write a lot. And I would have all like probably important for like design school. Well, this was my personal yeah. sketchbook. So yeah. this is my personal poetry and my personal sketchbook of what I would draw, like portraits of, you know, girls that I wanted to date but wasn't dating. <laughs> and uh, I remember leaving it, leaving it on the Bart, on the on a t in a chair, and I left. And as soon as the door shut, I realized what happened. And I sat there for the rest of the day, and I went through and I wrote it like five more times, trying to get my stuff back, but it was it was gone. So someone's got that sketchbook now. Man, might be worth something. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> let's let's hope that that that's in my future where my sketchbook is worth something. But so you you grew up in in Daly City. Like, what did you have uh, an apartment there with a garage with cars? What was the story with that? No, so so we lived in um. We lived in San Francisco, bo was born there. Uh, we moved to Daly City for a couple of years. We went to the East Bay for a couple of years um, in Hercules, a town called Hercules. And um, back then, all we did was ride bikes. There were no stores in that town yet. And um, we would ride about maybe 10 miles to the first store. And um, it this was just be all like about BMX bikes? Yeah, BMX bikes. Okay. What did it you was, have? I'm curious. Oh man, I, I, I didn't 
so growing up, I didn't get any toys. So I had like this old Huffy back in the day. And um, we would drive, we would ride our bikes to the bike store. And I would always like, oh man, I'll, I want to get one of these mongooses or, you know what I mean? Like a Haro or something that was oh, yeah. super cool back then. And um, all my friends, they kind of, I don't know, for some reason, they all had the thousand dollar bikes and I was still stuck with this Huffy. And um, I don't know, it was just one of those things where you just kind of dealt with what you had and then just kept going, you know? Yeah, I had the I had a Huffy White Heat. That was kind of what I had. That was like everybody else had Dino Comps and GT Vertigos and Haros yeah. like Masters and everything like that. And I remember I yeah. saved up for a really long time, and the best I could get was I got a Diamondback, and that was like nice. still way below like a GT. <laughs> but I was actually just restored it the other day, or didn't restore it, got it going again, so I can ride it around. But even then, it was just never as cool as what everybody else had. Yeah, I think that's also the reason why I. As I've grown older, I've just been going crazy and buying a bunch of shit because I never had it when I was young, you know? <laughs> for sure. For sure. I've had a, I've bought a dyno comp. I've had a GT performer in my later life. And I'm, I'm kind of like, yeah, but now I'm too old to fall off the thing, which is kind of a bummer. <laughs> no, no, you're never too old, man. I'm, I'm, I'm still riding my BMXs with my kids, so. You might fun. be too old to get back on it after you fall off, though. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about is oh. breaking a hip or something. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I have friends that are like younger than me, and and they they can't even ollie off. I mean, they can't even jump off a sidewalk, and they're breaking their collarbones. I'm like, dude, how, how is this even happening? We're not even we're not that old, you know? Yeah, that's why Funny. we surround ourselves in in in, in steel and iron yeah. in a car to to keep ourselves safe. So, what was your what was your first car experience back then? What did you you know when you went from a bike? Do you remember the first thing you ever drove or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. So a friend of mine, I was 14 at the time, um, a friend of mine brought, said, hey, man, we're going to go to this Volkswagen show. I go, oh, what's, what's Volkswagen show, right? I didn't know anything. So we went to Sacramento. It's called Bugorama. Something, uh, it was an all Volkswagen show. And it was my first time ever seeing, like, super cool Volkswagen, right? I, I've seen them, like, driving by, but I never knew who owned them. And my friend brought me there, and that's like when I caught the bug on on the VW life, you know. And so were these like mostly like air cooled, or were there also like yeah. golfs and some of the water cooled no, stuff no. as well? It was only air cooled back then. We were only about I was only about the air cooled. I mean, he he had a Scirocco. We drove there in his Scirocco, or was it his van? I can't remember. But um, he had a Scirocco back then, so his was all fixed up. And said, man, one of these days I'll get I'll get something like that, but. It wasn't until very, a very long time after because um, my first car was my mom's hand-me-down, which wasn't a bad car. It was a E30, um, a 1984 E30 with the big metal bumpers. Oh, yeah, the diving boards. Yeah, so uh, she gave me that. Well, when, when I started driving, that's when she decided uh, I'm not going to drive anymore. So I became like her chauffeur, <laughs> and I drove her everywhere. It was crazy. What was the first car that you ever modified? That was it. I, I had that car for 10 years because I couldn't afford anything else. What, what, I, I, do you remember lowering I, it for the first time? What like what occurred <laughs> to you to like lower it? Like, oh, my God, I need to lower this thing. There's there's no way oh, this stock ride height's going to fly. You know, you know why? It's because there's this one there was this one kid um, who's super rich and we would see him drive by every day. We're like, damn, his, his BMW is so much nicer than this. Right. And it was lowered, had some wheels, had the had a body kit. I'm like, man. 
how, where do you buy these things? Right. Cause there was no internet back then. So this, but this guy just happened to have all this cool stuff. And so then I just cut the springs right in half. Right. I just cut it right in half. That's quite a, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it lowered the car, but it was, I bet it did. <laughs> worst, the worst ride ever. It's pretty funny. So yeah. what about wheels? What was the first set of wheels you got for it? Oh, I got a, I got a set of Momo stars. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine, I, I, I think they were stolen. I don't know, but <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was 500 bucks. I couldn't pass it up. It didn't have caps. So that's why I thought that they were stolen. Right. And I was like, Oh, I think I'll take them. Fuck it. You know, 500 bucks. It took me forever to save up. Right. And, uh, yeah, I got, I got some stars. So were you doing designing stuff at this time in your life? You're like late teens, like early twenties. Is that when you started like drawing and, and, and that kind of thing? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Cause, um, I was into, um, I went to three high schools. I was a kind of a, I don't know. I, I'm, I wasn't a bad kid, but I was way into graffiti. Right. So back then it was kind of considered bad. And uh, now you're an artist, right? If you're a graffiti guy, but, right. um, I got in trouble with one school. I went to another school. I got in trouble there. So I had to go to my final school and I didn't know anyone. And I, I was still doing art, but you know, I never thought of it as a career. It was just more, I loved doing graffiti. It was my favorite thing in, in the world, that and DJing. Why do you think it was your favorite thing? Why did you get into it so much? I don't know. I mean, like uh, I had a few friends that were into it. I just wanted to perfect my, uh, my hand style. And, and uh, at that time, you know, you can only see things on, on newspaper, um, like magazines or, um, not even, you know, magazines, or you'd watch something on, on VHS. <laughs> like, you know, back then it, there wasn't any DVDs. It was just tapes. Right. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. People will never know the pain of, of adjusting tracking on their movies so they can, <laughs> they can see it without a bunch of lines crawling all over it. Um, eventually you oh, ended yeah. up working for, for Nike, right? Doing design for, for them. Yeah. Right before Nike, I was in advertising. So I was in, uh, I went to, I worked at four advertising agencies before Nike. And then, um, a friend of mine asked me to come back to gap because they were looking for a art director, senior art director at the time. So I was just there for like four months. And that's when Nike invited me to campus. And, um, I don't know. I, w I went to I, a friend of mine worked at Nike, and he he was like, "Hey, you, you got to come up to campus sometime. We want to. I want you to show it. I want to show you it." I was like, "For sure. If you guys are paying for all this, I'm gonna go." Right. Right. So I so I went. Had no idea we were. Um, had no idea this was an interview. I swear. <laughs> I, I like. I I dressed like a normal dude. I was just like dressed like a regular guy. I didn't didn't have any kind of. I didn't have a resume or anything with me. But my friend, who just happened to have a really high up position, he started in, um, introducing me to, I don't know, I, I think I met four or five VPs of Nike. And at the time, I was like, well, I'm meeting some really high up guys right now, right? And at the end of the day, they go, hey, um, hey, would you would you consider working here? I go, whoa, whoa I, <laughs> I didn't know this was in an interview. This is crazy. I have to ask my wife, you know, and um and then uh, I asked her, and then she said, I'm not moving. So then I, I, I just still took the job. I was just commuting. What occurred in your mind that made you want to um, start doing your own branding? 
Um, I think in the beginning when I was, uh, when we moved back to Daly City for college, because uh, college, I went to state, San Francisco State. So it was um, less than a mile away from where, where our house was. So I, I was renting rooms and then just paying for my stuff through the rooms. And I started a, a little sticker business at the time called uh, Mecca Graphics. And um, I was just this making like stickers. making stickers for other people. Anybody that needs some stickers, yeah. you're going to des- design a little logo for them and get some vinyl printed kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. I, I worked at a sign company and then I hated my boss. And then I said, you know what? I, I could, I could do this on my own. So then I did, I did I had no intentions of doing business, right? That was not my thing. I don't think we had a business person in my family, right? That we had a banker and most of my family were uh, chemists, you know? And, and I, my, my route was actually to go get into medicine until I realized, oh man, I really don't like looking at blood, right? Like, <laughs> oh. it sucked. It like, it like kind of threw me off because I was really wanting to be a cosmetic surgeon. And I said, nah, maybe not because the, the blood thing kind of threw me off. And I think from there I, I took up uh, interior design and that's what I graduated with, but I was still doing my sign business at the time. So I was making pretty good money at you know, I started making good money and I was like, Oh, this is kind of good. I graduated. And my dad was like, Hey, you, you should probably get a real job. I'm like, Oh man, I'm, I'm actually buying a lot of stuff right now. I think this is a real job. So <laughs> yeah, he that's always me. the thing when, when dad say get a real job, I've, I've heard that a few times too. Yeah. He said, uh, get a real job. So that's when I kind of got into advertising and from there, it just helped me realize, okay, I've, I had this business. Um, um, I think I want to start my own brand, but at the same time, I can't do do it just with my own money that I don't have. So I was working at the advertising agency while I started my other brand called Fat Lace. Where did Hella Flush come from? What's that name mean? Okay, so uh, in two thousand, oh no, in nineteen ninety eight, um, I discovered what drifting was, and uh, through a friend that lived in Japan, he moved there. He was a English teacher and he sent me some videos and I was like, Oh, wow. What, what the hell is this? This was like five cars at one time, just like sliding around. And I had no idea what that was. He was like, dude, this is new. And like, I don't think it was new there, but it was new for me. So it was drifting. And not till 2001, three years later is when I, um, I, you know, I started drifting myself because I, I, I couldn't really drift with, at the time, I had a, I don't know what car I had at the time, but I bought an S2000. I couldn't drift that thing, so I bought a, a S14. And our friends, uh, we all kind of like thought, let's mimic this Jap- Japanese style, right? Like super low, wheels are super close to the fenders, and, and, and let's make it functional because we still, you know, we started drifting and we loved it. And a friend of mine goes, oh, man, that's so cool. That, that's hella flush. And I said, oh, wow, that's a cool name. So I just bought the, the, the URL and kind of made a, a brand out of that. So hella is like kind of like a California word for very, right? For those guys that don't know. I mean, I lived in California for a long time, so I, I get it. But hella just means very whatever, right? Yeah, it's just kind of saying uh, really or very. Yeah, very flush because it was flush. Our, our rims were really flush to the fenders. And when it would uh, go in while you're drifting, it, it never hit the fender. So we're pretty 
you know, we were pretty stoked on not breaking anything while we were drifting. So, <laughs> so what, what was the, what was the scene like at this time? So drifting's really new. Um, there's not a ton of people that are doing, uh, like as what we would consider a hell of flesh and stance. Right. I mean, it was kind of still fresh at the time. Yeah. I mean, I, at the time, I, I think I did a magazine, um, in 2003, they were asking me about the scene and I said, well, actually it's been around. I mean, the guys in Germany and a bunch of guys have been doing it. It just hasn't been popularized. And I feel like, uh, once we started gaining momentum and people started following hella flush and it just kind of blew up and, you know, it went from hella flush to some people didn't like that word. So they used the word stance and, and then I said, Oh, that's cool. I don't, I don't really care. I mean, we didn't own it. So it's just fun. Well, how do you think your brands and influence changed the scene at the time? I, I, at the time we, we had no idea. I think it was just, let's just keep going. Um, let's sell some stickers. Let's pay for the venue. Cause we used to rent racetracks and just drift just friends, you know, like we would rent out the track just for 20 people and just practice all day long. You know, it was just one of those things that would just, let's, let's just do it for us. And, and we didn't realize there was a scene growing around us. That's kind of what it seems like happens a lot is you have these, these core people that, that do something and that gets added to this, this formula, right? Like you can, especially if you go on Instagram now, you can look and see, you can look at these kind of these cultivated Instagram pages where you can see the formula of what is cool, right? <laughs> you can see the, the formula of what somebody did at one point and then it's been, then it was considered cool and now it's being, it's being co-opted by, by others. Yeah. Do, you, do you feel like that's a good thing or a problem or where do you see that kind of co-opting appropriation of car culture going? Um, I mean, everyone kind of like, this is just my opinion, right? I think everyone has their own agenda when they, when they create things and whenever they make things. So whether they're in it to, you know, get money from it or whether they're in it to just get fame, like you really can't, you, for me, I don't, before I used to like always like, Oh man, what's wrong with these people? They're kind of crazy. Right. And, and then eventually, I think as I got older, I was like, well, you know, everyone has their own agenda. So just kind of let it be because we, we we personally don't really care about like where it started. I mean, maybe we helped create this fire and 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 now it's gone out of control. And then we were like, oh, shit, we feel bad that it went out of control. But, you know, as long as we know that we were part of the start and we had fun and i think that's okay so with your branding you kind of started at you know 2001 2003 whatever that's forums are really a big deal back then you know all the internet oh, yeah. forums and you know stanceworks forums canopy forums you know vw yep. vortex all that stuff's huge and over the next 15 years after that you saw this slow uh shift over to social media whether instagram facebook you know, now it's like Snapchat, TikTok, everything. And it's all this crazy stuff. How has you, how have you had to adapt your business and how, how has that affected how you operate your business? So, um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me personally, I think we're, um, I, did, I, I guess I could say I'm very lucky that we started early because we are able to, um, move faster now. Right. Cause I have a, I have a team of, I don't know. We have a global team now. I have partners and 
I, I'm just, I just have to manage creative, which is great. You know, I don't really have to deal with the day-to-day business side uh, like most people do with their brands. And um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to have these partners that wanted to take it over and help me kind of help the brand elevate versus us just, oh shit, we got to figure out how we're going to make rent or we have to figure out how we're going to move to get money for the next month or the next season or pay for this uh, bear brick drop that cost us $80,000. You know what I mean? Like those kind of worries are, are, are past me now. Right. Like before I had to do it, I did it for eight years. Right. And I, I was like, man, this is, this is a tough job. Right. Like nobody really knows. And, and this is why I say um, people that comment and they just go crazy on your brand. They're just talking crazy they just really don't understand owning a brand, right? Like you, you already know, like the people that talk the craziest, they, they have no idea what they're talking about because they've never dealt with what brand owners have to deal with every single day, you know, just by keeping the lights on. Right. So I've done that so many years and super fortunate now that we have this uh, partnership that has helped out a lot. What are the biggest challenges that you've had? You know, obviously when you, I think you're talking about what everybody would call as the haters, right? The guys that have, they have nothing invested in anything, but they, they feel like they can tear you down. Um, obviously that's a challenge, you know? Um, but what about, you know, other business challenges, like working as a small business, what was the biggest thing that you've had to overcome? Um, I think, so, so I was fortunate enough to, before I started Illist as a clothing brand, um, I left Nike. They were, they were, they gave me like a year severance um, because we were doing some shuffling and I was having my, my kid. And I said, uh, I might as well just raise my hand. I'm out of here. Right. So they, I was able to get some, I guess, investment for my brand. Right. And the brand at that time was taking off. And luckily it's all about timing. But when you think about uh, brands period and, um, the hardest, I guess the, the biggest hurdle was, okay, here's, here's a really good example, right? So in, in clothing, in clothing <laughs> back then, and now it's not the same, but uh, back then you used to have four seasons and you'd pay for one season and you'd pay for the next season and the next and the next. Um, and you'd hope that you could sell these, these say a hundred thousand dollars worth of product. Right. But the problem is that hundred thousand, say you sold, 60 of it to wholesale businesses. If these wholesale guys decide uh, like they did, uh, they decided not to pay us because they were going through some hardships uh, because most retail brands kind of took a tank. They kind of tanked. So you're stuck with, okay, how am I going to pay for this now? And I think those were huge eye-opening moments for me as a clothing brand where I'm like, okay, we're never going to do wholesale again because, I can't afford to lose out on, at that time, I think we were owed uh, $350,000 and I never saw that money then, ever. So these guys are just like burning, the, the bridge is burned at that point. I mean, that's serious. Yeah, I mean, I, 350 is uh, a lot for anyone, right? I yeah. mean, it's crazy. And uh, I think at the time we were able to survive that. It was just one of these things where, okay, lesson learned, let's not do wholesale because every single retail business is they just don't want to pay anymore because, uh, you know, usually you do these net net thirties, which means, um, yeah, we do okay, those all the time. In. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
pay me in 30 days, right? And then these net 30s turn into 45 and then 90, and you're like, oh, my God, where'd these guys go? They disappeared. Uh, and you know, like it's just, it's just things like that, you know, and then you just got to deal with a lot of employees and attitudes. And we had at the time, maybe five stores. And I mean, I was trying to juggle all this. It was really difficult, but at the same time, I learned a lot. Sure. Sure. Any advice for people that want to start a brand in the automotive world today? It seems tough. seems really hard. In the automotive world, I, I would say it's very difficult to have a clothing brand based on apparel i mean like clothes or brand period based on automotive but i mean some brands have done it i mean some people like uh a good friend of mine owns this brand called period correct um and i don't know if you guys know oh, that yeah, brand that's but a cool shop, familiar. Man. yeah i've been there it's cool stuff yeah that's actually my old store <laughs> i uh leased it out to my friend but um yeah no i mean like they're able to capture the people that they want to capture, right? Like they're not, they're just focused. And I think when you have a focus and it's your own personal brand, you just got to make sure you don't lose focus and just stay, stay on that path. Because if once you do, you're going to lose your whole clientele. Yeah, that, that makes sense for sure. Um, so you were one of the first people to bring light to RWB. And a lot of the listeners here are Porsche guys. So they'll, they'll know what we're talking about. Tell us about the yeah. first time that you saw one and you were like, wow, that, that is it. I need that. What was the first time you experienced an RWB? Oh, I think I was in New York. Uh, we had a, we had a launch at, at Nike and I saw, I think Brian Scotto, you guys know him? He was, he's with the Hoonigan. Yeah. I know the name. I haven't met him, but I know, I know who you're talking about for sure. Yeah. So he used to do this magazine and, uh, he's, featured them and I was like oh my god this is crazy this is like everything I want my Porsche to look like right what, and cir- what is I this had, when circa when when are we talking about here 2000 um maybe 2008 or 9 okay yeah 8 9 something like that because I had just bought my I bought a 964 in 07 I used my bonus money that I didn't have yet because the bonuses didn't hit <laughs> <laughs> and and I was like oh how am I going to pay for this? Right. But anyway, um, yeah, no, I saw it. I, and then I was like, Oh my God, I want, I, I gotta, I gotta get one of these cars. And then I had a very different, it took me a year actually to figure out how to get in contact with Nakai. I tried Sunburst, this other company that was, uh, I heard they were making body kits for Nakai. They, they weren't speaking, they didn't speak English as well. So I just ended up going to Japan and, um, going to, I think, I don't know. I was there for some reason and I just visited the shop and I said, I wanted to. So did you just roll up? Like, I'm just going to go, go to this building and see if he's here, like knock on the door. What was the situation there? Yeah. I I actually got in contact with, uh, Toshi. He was kind of like Nakai's right hand guy at the time. He wasn't, you know, he's a doctor. So he was just like, Oh yeah, yeah. Come, come by. So we went there, met, and I was like, Oh my God, this is, this is it. I want to do this. And so I talked to Brian Scotto. I said, dude, you want to, he goes, dude, we should bring Nakai to Japan. I mean, to the U S I go, let's do it. And, um, that SEMA, that SEMA in 2011 or 12, I can't remember 13, maybe 12. No, I think 11. Um, we both got our cars built at my warehouse and that was kind of it. So what was he like when you met him? Cause at the time, I mean, 
this is still like a kind of quiet time in what I would consider the RWB phenomenon. It, it, yeah. he's, he's still just this dude, you know, with a cigarette somehow defying physics hanging off the top <laughs> of his lip and working dude, in this. It, the, the, it's, it must have been crazy just experiencing this person in hindsight. Like, you don't like you maybe didn't know it at the time, but in hindsight, seeing him like that versus seeing it now, it must be interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's such a day and night <laughs> um, effect that happened. And I think when I first met him, luckily, we had two Japanese guys that worked with me, you know, and they helped translate because he didn't speak English yet. And now he speaks really good English. And I think it was just cool. You know, I think we didn't try to blow up the scene. We didn't have tickets for sale so you could watch him cut up cars, you know, like, I, I don't know. I'm not really for any of that, but it is what it is. And it's turned into that. And I, I, I don't know, I feel it's kind of bad, but you know, for us, it was all about just hanging out with Nakai. So whenever he does bills at my place, it's pretty much close to the public. Uh, whoever knows about it, they can show up, say, what's up, pay their respects, hang out, you know, but we never had a show go on for him. You know, I just felt that was kind of wrong. It was it's interesting because I remember the first time I saw one, it was the Stella car. And I remember just seeing a picture of on the internet. I think maybe it was on either can't, maybe it was on speed hunters or something like that. And I just yeah, remember probably. going, Holy shit. This thing looks evil, right? Just I mean, so it, wild. it looks wild. It looks like it's going to drive upside down. It looks like it could go a million miles an hour. And I think that was, yeah. the, that, that was the first real exposure that the United States had to, um, rwb and you you kind of read about this guy and you're like wow this guy is it this guy has 2050 weight oil running through his veins there's no question about oh, it he okay. is the real deal and you know the funny thing about it is like when because i after that i used to go to i mean i still go to japan like five times a year but um we hang out nobody even knows how well nakai can drive he can drive so good you guys have no idea like he used to be like one of the best drifters in Japan. And then, you know, he just eventually moved on to Porsches, but he still drives like he's a maniac, like on the track. Like I've done, I think seven, 12 hour races with him. And man, it's crazy. That guy, he's a maniac on the track. It's pretty fun to watch. In the past, I've been pretty hard on RWB and some of the owners, mainly for, I felt was this. So you, you go over there, you see this guy, like, wow, this guy is it. This is the real deal. You met him. And it was just really kind of, it was I, unique. It was right? a unique experience that, that you that you took part yeah. in. And then I feel like after that, everything started getting like appropriated and all of a sudden it just like there was this explosion where the cars were just everywhere. And I felt like everybody just wanted a piece of Nakai and it just turned into something that just it was almost too much. It was like this pure automotive enthusiasm got kind of co-opted into this thing that it just wasn't anymore. Yeah, you know, we could say that about everything. It's I true. Think that's that's the true. Problem. You know, I feel like it did get blown out of proportion. Like sometimes I would see photos of him. It looked like they, they caged them off so you can't touch them. And I was like, well, what is going on? I kind of felt bad, you know, but I mean, I can't, like I said, like you can't really stop people from doing them. And I think that's how some people wanted to right. be a part of the scene. You know, that that's what they think is best for their brand, you know, their image for Nakai, I guess. Yeah, I think it all kind of goes back to the, you know, what I was talking about, about the the fame and everything else. Everybody sees what the formula for cool is, and they immediately want to start doing the math for themselves. So what would you describe 
stance as? Like if you if someone says, "Hey, Mark, what is stance? What does that mean? What is it?" Um, you know, it's okay. I'm gonna give you a funny, uh, I guess, observation. It's the word stance, right? Like when um, I think Stance Works came up with Stance Works. They're the first stance website, right? Right. Then uh, Stance Nation came out. And a whole bunch of other stance, everything's came out, right? And I was like, wow, this word is going off right now, right? And I mean, it's really going off. I was in a meeting uh, with the guys from, uh, they were basically the designers and the owner of Pininfarina. And he used the word stance. And I was like, what the hell? This is crazy. <laughs> these, guys, these guys, and these guys are Italian dudes, right? And I'm like, what? How, how did it even make any sense right this makes no sense to me right now but i mean for them and for me it's all about just the look and how the car sits you know i think that's the best way you can kind of um describe it to some people it's kind of more you get stance but it's like hella flush style so people think of the word stance is, is like more hella flush like slammed to the ground and stuff but it's really just the way the car sits. And if it sits well, then you're like, Oh wow, that stands properly. You know what I mean? Right. It's kind of like the emotion of the, the way the car is sitting there. Like you can almost look at a person the way that they're standing in front of you and you can get like what well, you can decide whether they're, whether they're happy or angry or, or aggressive or complacent just by the way that they're standing and holding themselves. And I feel like you can kind yeah. of apply that to a car too. You can, you can tell, you can tell almost by looking at the stance of a car, what's mm -hmm. what's been done under the hood perhaps like is it you know built for motorsport is it built for aesthetic is it built for um SEMA? that type of thing yeah that's that's exactly how it, it should be described on wikipedia right <laughs> like if, if you're if you're looking at um a car and you see it on the ground you already know okay this guy's into this style right right like that that's exactly how stance should be described I think that that's one of the coolest things that you can about cars is that you can you can definitely take you who you are and what you want something to be and you can shape the car in so many different ways to make it fit who you are and your identity and I think that's you know that is the almost the best thing about automotive enthusiasm in general. Yeah, and I I think uh, on top of that that's also a huge problem for people like myself because like I said I didn't have toys growing up and now I have like <laughs> I'm in way into so so I'm trying to figure out okay for camping I'm gonna use this car for for uh, car shows I'll keep, you know what I mean it's just like oh it just gets crazy after that. So what responsibility yeah. do you feel that you had in the peak of the stance movement? Did you try to like push things a certain way and exert influence, or did you just kind of like let things go as they did? Well, I think um, I I didn't really try to push anything. People were people like. Um, Friends from, I guess, automotive brands would invite me to come over to work on something with them, and they wanted my touch, which I had no idea. I was just like, okay, I, I like. What does like that this. mean? What, is, what do you What do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> this is this is my this is my style, so I'll do it my style. They're like, yeah, yeah, we wanted to do it. We want you to do this your style. So I just did things however I felt was cool at the time for myself, you know. So in the in the car world, at least the year on the stance scene, it feels like everything is. I feel like everything kind of went away. You know, Soho was a, a, a cool show. It was awesome in Helen, Georgia, and when Soho yeah. died, I feel like that year 
marked the shift where everything kind of started to like fade away a little bit because H2O was never the same. It got taken over by the mm-hmm. Camber gang. And so it wasn't ever the same. It was gone because of all the kids doing burnouts and everything else. And that's not to yep. say that car shows were crazy. If you ever were in a, in, at Waterfest in the early 2000s or mid, you know, 20, 2009, it was wild. So things were always <laughs> wild, but it just seemed like everything at that point started to go downhill. And I don't know what to attribute it to. Is it social media? Is it um, just the fact that new cars are harder to modify? Why do you think things have gone? Uh, I don't know. Maybe downhill is not the right word, but. Why are things are the way that they are versus how they were maybe 10 years ago? I think, um, yeah, I think you're right, man. Like we, we used to have, like, I I live in California and I I have a place in LA as well. So when you go to LA and this is why I think the scene kind of died was because you go to LA, there's three shows in one weekend, right? Not everyone can go to every single show, but it makes no sense why there would be three shows in one weekend. Right. And it's all the same category. You're like, why didn't you guys space this out or talk to each other? This is crazy. And then you'd go next week. It'd be the same thing. There'd be two shows. And I think they just played themselves out, you know, and I think everyone wanted a piece of the pie and, and people were just like, Oh man, this is, uh, this is where it's at. And, and it kind of killed it. And, and that's kind of why you see, meets just happening now like people just want to do meets because they're they don't want to sit at a car show for eight hours or 10 hours or however long two days or whatever it's almost because it's just, it's almost like we missed out on something though because you used to have you know when i did my show euroworks we gave away we gave like a thousand dollars and a thousand dollar trophy and then two grand for first place and you had these this competition that was you know everybody always says that you shouldn't build a car for trophies you should build it for yourself but i don't think those two things are mutually exclusive i think you can do both and i feel like everything just turned into this like top 25 thing where nobody was giving out trophies anymore and then it kind of led to this thing where people just wanted to drink and hang out and just shoot the shit but i feel like everybody was doing that anyway at these shows (laughs) like how come there's no trophies anymore there doesn't ever seem like you look at the other day i was paging through pvws from you know 2009 2010 i'm like holy shit look at these cars Everything's chrome. Yeah. Things are shaved more than a baby that hasn't even grown grown a beard yet. And all these yeah. things are so beautiful. And I feel like we don't see that anymore. No, we don't. No, nobody's actually spending time anymore on their cars. They just want to lower it. Maybe put some air just so, so they can get up things and just rims, you know? That's kind of the basic basic right now for everyone. What do you, you think? Know, it's, I don't know why. It's like the older guys are still kind of tinkering on uh on toys and and definitely going all out but they're they're only doing it for themselves and they'll only show up once a year at if that you know right do you think it has anything to do with a shift towards these negativity builds like i think immediately when i think of this i think of the um i think of that lamborghini with the external roll cage that the kid drives around (laughs) and oh boy he's just (laughs) i have a problem with that one that one's crazy to me it's crazy car (laughs) but it's less about the car and the more of the attitude of the owner because people will come into his youtube channel or instagram they're like hey what are you doing this this is you know and he just is he gets energy from the negativity of the car that he's building like he's building it for the negativity Build it for the haters, Chris. You got to build it for the haters. And it's it's almost like people are building anti-scene cars and do things just to anger people. How do we we fix this? How do we get this back to to where we were? I know how. There's one way. Everyone can just have a pager now. That's it. 
<laughs> that is the best idea I've heard in a long time. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to be able to pass that through the Congress. I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> pagers, pagers only. That's no cell only phones. Way. No Instagram. Just pagers. I feel like we have all these, all the the content creators that are out there. Everybody's. It's all shock value. Right. It seems like the really deep constructive content's getting buried in lieu of just the stuff towards consumerism and materialism. And we're going to jump things off of this. What's going to happen if we jump this car off a ramp and then, oh my God, it's exploded and the guy hurt himself. Yeah. And you're like, well, yeah, <laughs> it's a Miata. What did you expect to happen? And yeah. it's these things, all this stuff is so vapid. And as soon as it gets out of the algorithm, it's like it doesn't matter anymore. There's no story associated with anything. That, that's a thing. That's another thing. It's like, that shock value you just spoke about and next day it's doesn't matter to people they just don't care they just want to see what's next right so it's people's attention span is not there anymore like nobody really wants to sit down and read a book or even read a article they just want to look at the photo and just kind of make up their own mind of what that photo is about right and that kind of sucks. Like no, nobody wants to read anymore. That's a, that's kind of the worst part about it. It's true. You see that. You see the some of the brands. I know that Type Seven does this. The Porsche brand is. You'll see stories that pop up, and it's it's a bunch of text on a story, like the Instagram story or whatever. And you're like, well, who's reading this stuff? Is this how we're trying to present text and stories to people? Is an Instagram stories rather this than a full worst, article? It's yeah. the worst content delivery vehicle for text and stories that I've ever seen. It's just not made for that. I think what would be cool is if we had, um, whether it be Porsche or BMW or Honda for that matter, or anybody with these, if we could get the the big brands to start putting money in towards stories, you know, mm -hmm. and start telling people stories again, I think would be, would be great. I think, um, I think you're right. I think this break that we all had, it made me, I mean, I read so much in the last three months. I've never read this much in my life, but I caught up on a lot of things because I, I didn't have that time, you know, to sit down and look at these things because I would just kind of glance through the photos because I have to be at, in Japan or I have to be in the Philippines or I have to be somewhere. And I just didn't, never had that time. But it, it, this, these three months helped me realize that, shoot, I'm missing out on a lot of things if I'm not if I'm just looking at photos. So I try not to spend all my time on Instagram or that. I mean, that's basically what I use. Yeah. I mean, you're not reading anything as you're scrolling by hitting like, that's the thing. I mean, it's, <laughs> it takes, it takes personal investment to read something. I wrote a, I wrote a 15,000 word article for triple zero. It's the, it's my favorite and best thing I've ever written, but I mean, you got to sit down on the toilet for at least 50 minutes to be able to read the entire thing. It takes time. Well, my son, my son sits on the toilet for 50 minutes, so he could probably read that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, like, hey, wait, hey, hey, what are you doing in there, man? Like, what are you doing? Like, I'm still in the bathroom. I'm like, oh my God, what are you doing in there? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're running out of time a little bit, but I wanted to get one more, uh, one more question in to Mark Arsenal. What makes a car cool? Oh man, for me, um, I, I love colors on a car, like the right color. Although my, all my, most of my cars are black right now or white. Um, but when I, when I, when I personally build a, you know, like an RWB or whatever, I, I like to choose a really cool color and I like to make sure the car is like complete as a whole, like whether it's like engine tune you know, suspension, the right suspension. Like I'll spend 18,000 on a Porsche, uh, on, on a, like, a like a G body 911 because I love the suspension. Once I'm, I, that's like my favorite part on 
G bodies is spending all that money on the suspension and tuning it up because once you have a tuned suspension on a G body, like I feel like it's better than a 964 suspension. You know, that's just my opinion. But oh, you're carrying around a lot less weight with it. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, and then you just feel that weird sway going. You're like, man, it's like feel like it's going to snap around, but it never does. And I don't know. I just like having complete cars. I think that's one thing that doesn't necessarily exist anymore. And you kind of made me think of something, but back in the day when you'd be on the forums, you know, a guy would lower his car, put wheels on his car and everybody would be like, okay, well, what are you going to do with the engine? When are you going to do the interior? When are you going to do this? <laughs> There's no that? shaming anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, there certainly is shaming, but I'm just saying like the, the concept of well-rounded sure. Of, like you've, it, it's not a build. If you haven't done the engine in the interior, you had to like, you had to touch all these different aspects of the car for it to be considered a build. You had to, touch everything yeah yeah and maybe we're getting old huh <laughs> <laughs> well that that goes without question mark thanks thanks a ton for coming on the podcast man it was a lot of fun i really appreciate you spending time with us awesome man thank you guys all right take care Bye. buddy all right bye that was awesome obviously you can find him at at all of his things you know on, on instagram he's pretty easy to find so go check him out if if, if you can um Really, really interesting to talk to somebody that's kind of from the same time period I I was, kind of growing up around the forums with the internet and stuff like that. Right. And uh, yeah, I don't. It's 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 nice to think that we could get things back to the way they were. I like the pager idea. I like, but it's never. <laughs> it, it's never going to happen. What if it's like a cool trend though? Like you're cool if you have the pager and not the phone. No. Yeah. People now are growing up with a phone in their hand. And it's something that's it's integral to society. So you're never going to see that. I know. But what I think we could do. Is I think some of the bigger brands and the and the people with with funding, you know, whether that's you know Haggerty or Honda or Porsche or or uh, any, any of these big YouTube channels that are uh, Motor Trend, whatever. Mm-hmm. These people need to put money together to create stories and 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 make something that's not just a bunch of fluff. It's their right. responsibility to do so. Yeah, and I think you know I didn't want to derail the conversation before, but I think the reason you see these like shock value videos and photos that are just flash in the pan is because there's just so much noise out there. There's so much content that isn't good, mind you. Mm-hmm. There's just so much content, quantity-wise, that that's usually how you get noticed. The problem is what should be getting noticed is the quality content. Right. the The, the model for making money is what's broken. So yeah. the the way that you make money on the internet now with content is eyeballs, right? Sure. Obviously, with anything you want people, with any kind of marketing, advertising, you need people to see it, right. right? So you will do whatever it takes to get people to see it so you can show them the ads <laughs> so you can get the money. And this goes for whether you're on Jalopnik or you're on Drive or you're on Motor Authority or wherever you are, whatever or website. Or on TV. Or on, well, TV is <laughs> a little, TV market is a little bit different than the internet. Or you're on YouTube everybody's keeping track of those clicks and they want to see results, right? They want to see how many people saw this, you know, okay. A lot of people, a thousand people saw this one. Let's do that again. This one worked a million people saw it. And then you start getting these formulas in your head of what works and what works is when people go, holy shit, right? That's what works (laughs) is when people go, oh my God. And then they share it to their friends. Every once in a while you get these high quality things too. Like the, there's a video of a, I think it's a 250 short wheelbase Ferrari that's driven by the son of the original guy who owned the car. He's a race car driver. I can't remember okay. his name. And it's this beautiful video of just him driving the car and the sound. It's on Petrolicious. Okay. It's a great, 
video. It's got a gajillion views because it is this carnal thing. And there's, so there's like this, there's two different things. You can shock people or you can engage them emotionally. And there's only a few, you can only engage people emotionally X amount of times before they get desensitized something. You can't, you can't keep showing them 250 short wheelbase noise over and over again. You can't do it. I'd be fine with it. (laughs) But you also, if you're going to surprise and shock somebody, you can't do the same thing over and over again. You have to do what? You have to one up. You have to keep getting bigger and better and doing doing different things pretty soon you're doing drift videos through detroit in your 500 million horsepower <laughs> uh whatever huna machine yep and i mean but that is the model yeah. that's that's the way it is and that's not going to change until um the consumer starts to change that formula too i mean it's it's almost like this cycle that i don't know can be broken hmm. it just kind of is what it is on that note Everybody, hop onto <laughs> patreon.com slash overcrest. That's how you change the model, Chris, That's right there. That's how you change it. You like this content? You want to hear more of this? This is how you support uh, this is good how you content. Su- support the content. Well, like I say, whether it's us or someone else, support creators, support content that you love. Patreon.com slash overcrest. All right, we will see you guys on Monday. Um, we've got a a great episode that's going to give homage to somebody that's very important in, in Porsche culture and engineering. And uh, we think you will really, really enjoy that. Jake's working on that right now. We will see you guys next week. Take care.